0: Wheel of Time turns and podcasts come and go. Welcome to Wattcast, a Wheel of Time book and watch club. We are reading through Robert Jordan's epic fantasy series and watching Amazon's Wheel of Time TV show. I'm Caleb Wimble, and with me are Dan Katinski. Hey, everyone. Keely Frank. Hello. And Nick Wicks. Hey, everyone. You can find us at watcast.net and support the show at patreon.com/watcast. You can also email us questions, comments, and corrections via contact at watcast.net with the subject line "questions." We'll answer them here on the show. Uh, you can also contact us on our Twitter account at podcasts at Wattcast podcast rather, uh, where we do have some recent questions that I unfortunately have forgotten to bring up on the show. I'll see if I can remember by the end of this one to pull those up. But if you want to make sure that your that your uh, that your questions are featured, go ahead and send them to our email. Because I'm very, very bad about checking uh, binary social feeds. I'm bad enough about keeping my own up. (laughs) Today we are starting book three of the series, The Dragon Reborn. We have read the prologue and chapters one to ten. In these chapters, we begin with uh, an excerpt of the Prophecies of the Dragon. We get into a prologue uh, featuring the Lord Commander of the White Cloaks, Getting the update from Child Buyer about uh, basically what happened at the end of the prior book, The Great Hunt, from the White Cloak's distorted perspective and the the, uh, the, the fall of Falma as he sees it to, uh, to the, the declared false dragon, Randall Thor, who is now... In their sights. Um, however, we are immediately introduced to Dark Friend uh Jakim or Jakim uh, uh who is instructed by the Lord Commander, who does not know that Keradin is a Dark Friend, uh, to leave Rand alive for the time being. The Lord Commander is like doing this whole political maneuver where he's going to use Rand to unite the nations under the white cloaks against him. So he doesn't want him dead just yet. However, the Dark Friend, Karadin, this this questioner, one of the um not one of the children of the light, uh one of the shepherds, has instructions from a murdral to murder Rand ASAP because Balzaman is really pissed about getting sorted above, uh, above Falma, It's my, my presumption. So he's in the tight spot. We then jump to Perrin and the forces that have declared for Rand up in the mountains of the mist in in the winter where they are sort of in a kind of self-imposed exile away from all the throngs and masses that have declared for Rand and the armies that would have him dead. Rand is already speaking to himself a lot and reclusive and trying and failing to control the one power all over the place. The rest of the camp—it's a lot of uh, uncertainty about what is going to happen next, and 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 uh, increasing tensions between Moraine and Perrin and the others. Min is predicting a lot of dark things coming down the path, including um, the death of this, this tinker woman who shows up, uh, and we we are in that for a number of chapters before Perrin, uh, in his dreams, it, has, it begins. Sort of traveling wildly, seeing everything from Balzamon to le- to Landfear, these uh, these other uh, probably forsaken though he doesn't really know who any of these are. He's woken by uh, by the sounds of an attack, a warning from the wolves. There's a Trolloc attack, a lot of people to die. The wolves aid in them. Uh, Vran tries and fails to channel, almost almost well he doesn't fail to channel, he almost kills them all in the process. Rather I think right at that point, or is it that that one where he just um, not, knocks down a tree or something, or starts, starts an earthquake. Uh, he is so infuriated with his inability to control this and his belief that he's going to doom them all that he leaves without telling anybody and heads for the Stone of Tear, presumably, uh, leaving the rest of, of the newly formed dragon army behind. And Perrin, Loyal, and Moraine go to follow his trail towards Tyr. They meet a man in Jara who has gone completely wolf, uh, which, you know, scares Perrin about the fate he might share. Uh, and although he does exercise a kindness with the innkeeper there, the brother of the man the man who has turned wolf, and convincing him to set him free. And uh, learns a little bit more from Moraine about what she knows of wolf dreams and, and this ancient ability. We get a brief, only one brief passage in these first uh, 10 chapters in prologue, from Rant's perspective, where he is attacked by these ferocious hounds that seem hellish in some way outside a village somewhere and destroys them with the one power, though he doesn't know what he's doing, these beams of, of white, something like fire. And then finally, we, we jump to Egwene, Nynaeve, Elaine, and Varen on their way back to Tarvalon where they encounter white cloaks and are nearly, even though it's like right in the shadow of Tarvalon, are nearly taken in for questioning. But Egwene and Nynaeve frighten them off with the one power, which leaves Varen completely furious because she was going to defuse it all with diplomacy and now thinks that this is just going to inflame tensions with the White Cloaks. Uh, That brings us pretty much up to date, I think, in in these first 11 chapters. So, uh, Keeley, what were your big highlights this week?
1: So, I think in general, I just like to get more from Perrin's perspective, Um, but I kept making a note as I was reading it that, like, this doesn't feel like Perrin (laughs) because I feel like he has no personality up to this point. So having him, like, really try to stand up to Moraine... And like take more of a leadership role feels weird to me. Um, but I could be very much influenced from Perrin in the show though, who was basically like nothing. So it's it's neat to get more from his point of view, but also it just feels kind of like disconnected from this idea of Perrin that I have in my head. Because um, he
0: was he was almost background for so much of the last book and a half, right? He had yeah. very little little plot agency
2: until now.
1: Yeah, and so for him to show up and like question Moraine on everything i was kind of like have you earned that but okay
2: (laughs) yeah parent parents kind of like it reminds me of like a kid trying to stand up to his teacher or something (laughs) like with him moraine just uh him you know being so focused on on not being pulled by her strings and it's like totally goes with the the juvenile um Mm -hmm. personalities that that he and random Matt bring from the first couple books too
0: Oh, especially since uh, he knows he's wrong the one time that he, uh, when, he when he does even send up to her, but he's kind of just doing it out of pure spite and frustration and powerlessness that he's feeling at this point.
1: Yeah, and that, like, it also is, again, getting kind of annoying that every single time that someone has, one of these boys has a section, it always comes back to, oh, well, I bet Rand, or I bet Matt, or I bet Aaron, <laughs> like, I wish she yeah. was here. And it's like, just, just be your own person. Like, stop. I hate that. <laughs> but also that at one point, like, Moraine asks him, like, well what kind of dreams have you had and he's like they're mm-hmm. just dreams they don't matter like where the fuck have you been like that is not <laughs>
0: true at all they seem uh, to matter quite a bit in, uh, in the story so far as it turns out what about you nick big highlights in these chapters
2: so i had i had only like one note i took i realized i would pulled up my my notes that i keep um while i'm reading <laughs> and it was just the white cloaks are so fucking annoying They have zero imagination <laughs> at all <laughs> I, I, just like most of the, I mean, most of those chapters involving the white cloaks, um, it's just so. It's like I, I, I understand, you know, fanaticism and being in the, the cult is like, but it's also like so frustratingly unbelievable at the same time <laughs> that they can be so. Two dimensional when all the shit's happening. Yeah. Um, but obviously, I'm, I'm, read, you know, I have the reader's, uh, the reader's hindsight, if you, I guess, if you will. So I'm aware of all that stuff. But, but even like with Bornhald, um, Getting, getting killed and found and, and all of them, uh, and all of his, like, 500 troops or whatever it was. Yeah. And yeah. then being questioned, and they're all like, you know, this couldn't have been the dragon, and this was definitely Aes and, and, like, Sean Chan aren't real, and, like, just all this, like, ridiculous, ridiculous stuff.
0: And Bornhold was just about the closest thing to a reasonable or rational White Cloak that we'd encountered at this point, I think. And he's not, I mean, he's not great on those counts, but he was the only one who seemed to, like... Like you say, entertain some imagination of, of other possibilities outside the dogma.
2: Yeah. And it's like when uh, when Pedro Nile is is pushing back on Joachim Carradine or, or, you know, about about some of the, the things that went down. And he's like, well, Bornhold's you know, I thought you accused Bornholtz of being a dark friend. <laughs> and he's like, well, you know, he could be still a dark friend, but but, you know, we'll d- never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll never know
0: yeah, he does hold him to task a little bit. it is kind of fun to see Kerdin sweat as he is held between uh, the blackmail of the Lord Commander and the blackmail of the Merge all at, at the same time. Very difficult to have any sort of sympathy for the, for this guy as he represents the worst of the worst of both worlds, uh, but it does sort of it set potentially up some some plot friction there for which pathway he is going to go down and either following the Lord Commander's orders to keep Rand alive at all costs because they need him for their political purposes or or the Murdral's threat that kill Rand or your soul is devoured for eternity, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, and I, I feel like Niall actually comes across uh, as like one of the few um, relatively like sensible, in some sort of fashion, uh, White Cloaks, too. Just saying, you know, he, he recognizes the need to uh, have... Have everyone rally around the white cloaks if he wants to solve this problem. So at least, even though he's a white cloak yeah, yeah. and a quote-unquote you know bad guy, at least he's trying to solve the problem that he's he's putting in front of him instead of making up uh you know this like uh, fanatic like zealot bullshit. <laughs>
0: Yeah, at least he's clever in a Machiavellian way. I'm picturing him cast at. he won't be, I don't think he will be for season two or they haven't announced it, but he's, in my head, he's absolutely Charles Dance, like uh, Ty- Tywin Lannister from, from Game of Thrones, I think is the perfect ar- archetype of that character. The guy who does have the information networks, who does see things, who's at the head of this family of, of, of barely contained uh, murderous idiots sometimes, but, but has more conniving uh, than than almost any of them and, and will use whatever methods necessary to achieve his goals feels like a very fun one for for that sort of character archetype keely you mentioned it nick you might have also on the parent refusing to tell moraine about the dreams again we do eventually get that i think in in chapter eight but as always when it's late enough that it might have might might have prevented some tragedy to to come a little a little bit earlier, exactly as we have seen. I think in both the last two books, or with with Varin in the last one, though you know, understandably they didn't trust Varin as much, but certainly with Moraine in book one and her arrival in Camelot, where uh, where we realize a lot of bad things could have been prevented had people told them about their dreams up until then. Dan, what what were your big takeaways from these chapters?
3: Um it's always a slower start whenever Jordan begins a new book so things are ramping up but it, I don't know um I'd probably say parents development and him finally getting some spotlight time a lot of my annoyances with the prior books are carrying over, so I hope they start to iron some of that out. Uh, to Keely's point, they're still kind of falling into the same tropes about like a lot mm-hmm. of the same repeated dialogue with their interactions. I don't, I'm not a fan of Perrin constantly trying to avoid the wolf state. It seems to be very helpful, and he's always, I, I just feel bad <laughs> for the wolves. He's like, Shitting up on them or trying to block them out and they're literally trying to warn him. And to me that's yeah, very yeah. aggravating. Cause they they've been nothing but helpful and very friendly, and it's he's gotten skills from this. So it just it seems like a slap in the face to all the benefits he's getting from the wolf state, but he's just being aggravatingly hostile to it.
0: Although the story does provide us this time a concrete example of what he's afraid of. Exactly. We, we do, we do meet someone who has lost all their humanity and now uh, can't even communicate as as, uh, with, with human speech is just pure wolf at the, at this point,
3: which helps. I definitely think that's overall. I'm glad they're developing his character more, but it just means some of the stuff I didn't like about his character is still pervasive uh, and Mm. showing more, but overall happy about that. Um, I like the setting of the book and that they've started to play around with more characters, uh, especially in the camp, and you're getting to hear a little bit more dialogue from side characters that were kind of pushed aside um, in yeah, the last two books. Yes. So that's 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 great to see. Um, on the negatives, I feel like Moraine is constantly becoming more unlikable. the The, the further they get away from her perspective, the more just. Mm hostile and kind of cold she comes off and i I can't figure out if i like min or not the more i learn about her so uh, i don't know there's this pervasiveness about the binaries around gender and min seems to be despite being pretty gender fluid seems to be constantly reminding people about like the qualities of men and women Mm. (laughs) so i think usually i think moraine takes the cake for that but i think min is the biggest uh aggravator in that regard So I don't know. It's a mixed bag. I'm hoping I I feel like Jordan always spent so much time catching readers up to what's going on in the last two books. And I wish he could kind of just ditch that and be like, look, if you didn't, if you didn't read the last books, you're not going to understand this one anyway. So we waste so much time always explaining every concept in the books. I'm just like, why do we have to repeat like what this is? So I feel like the first three or four chapters...
0: Well, to be fair, that that that's basically a publishing requirement so, like, yeah, with, with any of these big series, especially when they're coming out like a year or more in between each other. You you just have to do that. Like it, that that's the universal. Doctrine in in the industry that you have you have to assume that some people who read the book may not have read the others or may have forgotten what happened, which seems absurd. I don't know why you would begin a series like this with book three, but I actually did that as a kid. Like sometimes those would be I, I I would just only have access to a later book in a fantasy series, or or it wasn't marked clearly that it was expected I had read a prior trilogy or something. So I, I do I have been in the position of benefiting from that, but I, I agree it is it is frustrating when we're reading them through in in rapid succession to have to go through all the same beats again, especially getting the same line yeah. that y'all that y'all called out about. <laughs> but like literally the same mantra that, that Perrin and Matt and Rand have about uh, the other knowing
3: so much more about how to handle girls and women. And,
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, we we got to get that over with.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, for sure. And it's a requirement, but I've seen other authors handle this so much better where it flows into the material where, Mm. With Jordan, he just kind of does like an exposition, like the first three or four chapters really felt like an exposition dump for prior books information about like, well, mm. this terminology here and this terminology here. And it didn't feel like it flowed with the narrative. Most authors can kind of blend in like little bits, uh, like pieces of nuggets, uh, mm-hmm. like of like background information and context. But Jordan's just, this one especially just feels so clunky where it's like, let's get out all the different concepts Mm. and just like every other line is like and this item is from this and this is how like why I said I can do this and this like it just yeah yeah
2: it felt a lot of that so it always he sometimes he does it well where he'll, he'll just introduce reintroduce something with one line which is fine but i do feel like he does spend the first two-thirds of almost the first like 10 books just rehashing kind of um the same thing and then all of a sudden in the middle of the books you realize oh we've gotten past that now because now we're like experiencing new stuff
3: <laughs> yeah it's just a little tiresome it's like I, I can't wait to like actually dive into the new content without having to like have every concept explained again
0: I guess I'll be the I'll be the uh, the the dissenter this week. I actually really enjoyed this bunch of chapters. I, I thought they read really quickly. I definitely agree. There there was a lot of recapping and a lot of reestablishing things that we already know, having just read the prior books. I actually I did think that the the prologue was a really good way of of doing a lot of that of, of from the white cloaks' perspective, as infuriating as they are. I think that's actually a tool that I would like to see him use even more in in the future books because, uh, you know, seeing if you're going, if you are going to go through the same information again and the same happenings again, that giving it through characters uh, who share a totally different perspective on those events or mixed information points of view on them from the main cast is a, is a fun way to do that. I think, but, but I did enjoy the parent chapters. I do like seeing him, Starting to develop a personality as as y'all have brought up and, and to assert himself a little more, even though if it is in Often not particularly well thought out ways and just the pent up frustration of being stuck, uh, which maybe speaks to what you're talking about with the with the plot. Um, not moving super rapidly at the beginning, because it is these characters being frustrated that they're stuck up here in the frozen mountains while all these things are going on in the world. And, and Rand is just uh, screaming at, at shadows and people who aren't there and nearly killing them all with earthquakes uh, while having no idea how he's supposed to fulfill prophecy um but uh I, I did kind of enjoy getting more of the shianaran's perspectives here a lot of the the camp personality dynamics were were working for me seeing a little i i i always do I agree. I always want more out of Min as a character. I feel like she is more interesting in her introduction than 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 the books have really delivered at this point, and, and she she deserves better so so far. In that, I hope the showrunners or, or the show writers rather, and and the cast will be able to bring out more uh, from her. I, I think there there's a lot of potential that's be that's not really being uh, fully brought out in, in in her as a character, and 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 what the struggle is like for her to know people's fates all around her all the time she starts to get into it and talks a little bit about that and what it is like being this cassandra figure who can't alter fate but i don't feel like we really get a deep handle on her psychology or anything like that maybe maybe that will come with future delves and her perspectives i thought the action was really good here uh, the the very disor- disorienting dream sequence of, of Perrin flooding through these characters that he doesn't recognize uh, that I do because I have read all these books before. But even even then, I, I was like, wow, we're really we're really zipping through all these conversations there. But in a way, I found enjoyable. I thought I thought it was a dreams are a good way of implementing that um, morphic confusion of uh, of these worlds that he's being brought into and eavesdropping on. And uh, finally letting the wolves in to help and, and save, save all their asses at uh, this attack from the shadow spawn, um and I, I do really like Chapter Eight, Jara, uh, at at the inn with the innkeeper and with the 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 character uh, who who has gone full wolf. I I thought, thought that was a pretty poignant moment, one of my few highlights in these chapters. Let's see if I can actually even uh, I don't pull these up and up. Nope, my annotation is missing. um Let's see if I can find Chapter Nine, Wolf Dreams. Zip back to Chapter Eight. So the the moment where he decides the innkeeper Simeon, uh, who he's like, had Perrin has these immediate, uh, intru- immediate as- assessment of him as just this bumbling, untrustworthy uh, asshole small town innkeeper, which is interesting given how often Perrin and his gr- and his friends are dismissed as small town bump- bumpkins by everyone that they meet, and and the way that he in this moment sort of reevaluates. What he thinks of of Simeon by the fact that it is revealed Simeon did realize that Perrin the moment he saw them was the one that the the white cloaks are looking for um and uh, and is going to harbor this known fugitive and not turn him in and decides a you know he has this bit where he's like you know a dark friend wouldn't care if my brother died in a cage uh I mean, I, I suppose she Moraine uh, found you soon after it happened in time to help I wish you'd come to Jara a few months ago anyway I I found this whole exchange pretty good pretty moving uh, and a good character development moment for for Perrin becoming just the slightest bit more broadened in his perspective, which is maybe not kept up, kept up with the pace of perspective broadening we would have hoped for, for all the world they've seen so far. I think that's starting to come through for me. And despite Perrin being such a wallflower in the first two books, starting to get the chance to become... More, uh, more, more of a character and more of an adult in some ways. Uh, that that I also hope the show will be able to bring in more into season two, uh, since he spent also the most of season one being kind of a, a punching bag for for the plot in some ways.
2: I do like I do like how Jordan has because I also felt like there was a poignant moment with. Um with men they were in the little mountain area and mm. she's talking about uh you know the tavern and nature and being pulled in and how you don't always choose your fate but like once you once it's chosen you that you have like the ability to um, still kind of follow it and uh, and like make it enjoyable. Uh, but I, I feel like Jordan does have these moments where he drops in like a bunch of knowledge. It's like on these random scenes without a lot of build up, uh, and you kind of leave yourself, uh, you know, or leave the book kind of wondering um, about these things.
1: So I have a question, though. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Chapter five, when they have that um, big battle, and then Mm -hmm. at the end of all of it, did Perrin literally just stand there howling? Is that what happened?
2: Yeah, I
3: think so. Like, yeah. I could
1: not get past that. I saw as I'm flipping through my notes. I it says like he. I'm pretty sure he's just like standing there howling or something at the end. And...
3: Oh, in in
0: the battle, he's fighting and killing Trollocs. On, right, on the but at the very
1: end, room. like. Oh yeah, at the
2: end, he says like he says he. Um... Mm-hmm. I forget, it's like some sort of victory howl or something like that.
0: Oh, right, because he becomes young bull in this battle, and and it starts yeah. referring to himself as young bull as his wolf Sona, basically, throughout <laughs> this. Yeah, and Lou uh, loses himself. In yeah, and moment, then the right? people are
1: just, like, standing there like, you good? So, like, did they watch <laughs> yeah. him actually howl?
2: I think so, yeah. I, I think so, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah
1: Yeah, i mean i i think that these chapters were moving not as fast as i felt for book two where i felt like book two i was like flying through the chapters now these seem to have slowed down for me a little bit primarily because i'm my brain is still like getting back online with like who all the characters are and where everyone's supposed to be um because i i kept like asking myself well like where the hell is this person it's like oh wait they separated like some went to tarvalon some went this different way so um trying to remember where everyone ended at the last book with what's happening now with this book with then developing personalities more. It's just like taking me a little bit longer to get into, but I agree about like, since we're not really getting Maureen's perspective, she does seem like kind of annoying right now. <laughs> and like um with Perrin being antagonistic towards her and then Loyal always in the background, like, shut up. You don't make her mad, Shut up. Don't make her mad, <laughs> yeah, Like yeah. piss her off. Like give her something to do. <laughs> so, Um, I don't know, maybe Perrin is just not one of my favorite characters right now.
2: They do do pick up, like, uh, there is this tension throughout the whole series, too, of communication barriers of, of characters just, like, not communicating, like, basic things. Like, you would think, like, you're having these terrible nightmares of waking up with, like, blood on you and shit. And they're mm. like, oh, I don't think of are telling anyone <laughs> about that. But, like, it also works both ways where you have uh, Moraine just completely sh- shutting off and not telling them anything about what's going on. And so, you know, just... You know, if you want to be if you want to be part of the solution, you've got to uh, start sharing stuff yourself mm-hmm. so you, you see that, like, Aes eye in not helping the situation at all.
0: True, yeah. Although, in this case, I wonder if Moraine's facade, because it does feel like a facade, is that she really has no clue what to do at this point because she just has this... Uh, she's convinced that Rand is going to know... He's going to know how to follow the pattern where it's pull, pulling him as Taverin and all that. And she really did... For... For telling everybody to trust her all the time and getting so furious when people question her or what passes for, for cold fury with Moraine, she's not offering a lot of helpful advice. Even when uh, n- not about like what is going to happen or how long they're going to have to wait, it's a lot of just trusting the pattern. She's a little more helpful with Perrin when he finally comes to her about the wolf dreams, but not much. She really does have to to pry it out of her. And, and, and he's like, am I going to wind up the same as this guy? And she's like, I don't know, maybe could be. Uh, and he's like, well, if I, (laughs) if I shut down the wolf part of me, if I block them out, will that help? And he's like, yeah, might, might not. Uh, but, 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 but I'm not going to, and she even says this explicitly, she's reticent to tell any of the, any of the two rivers kids not to follow their where their weird powers are taking them, because she thinks it might be useful in the last battle, and she's just there. And she is always letting them know they're weapons to her at the end of the day. And uh, maybe that speaks to what you were talking about, Dan, with the with Moraine as a character in general in this book, and how how hard she is coming across here. We're re- I think she she feels like she's in full utilitarian Moraine mode to me. That the, all these characters are means to an end around her, and she's just single-mindedly focused on the last battle, even at the expense of, of land's feeling still all the time. Like she is bringing that jab up constantly. Uh, Yeah. I hate that so much that she's going to force him not to kill himself and to go to one of her sisters. It seems so
3: cruel and just uh, disassociates you with, connecting with Moraine's character, it's like, why would you you got this super loyal follower slash friend or ally and it's like you keep jabbing with this like kind of mm-hmm. really cruel reality. And it's just, I don't know, there's there's not a lot of humor in that at all. It just seems really dark. No. Well on top yeah, of that too to your No sorry. No go ahead. Oh just part of it is kind of like what you and Nick were saying where it's like so much could be sought. It made sense in the first book and you totally get why because it's like she's the Gandalf of the series. You got a lot of bumbling fools who are like they who they act very immature. Like these kids don't have any knowledge. They're kind of sheltered. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that she doesn't want to have to like keep telling them all this information. They just need a follower. That makes sense. But now they they've been in the thick of things for a little while. They're a little more mature. They're asking more intelligent questions and wanting to kind of align on a plan. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really seem like she has one at this point. It's like all this buildup, and now it's like like the point with the prophecies and what's playing out there. It sounds like she's just kind of shooting into the dark now with what could happen. And she kind of says yeah so yeah explicitly with. Like I can't read the prophecies completely. We kind of just have some guesses and we have to like make the best out of it, depending on what comes true or what's a reality. As you're saying this, this really is just
0: uh, Moses and the Israelites in the desert. Isn't it at that point where he's like, they've been, they've been wandering around feels like they're going nowhere. Moses is the one who's always telling them what, what God's intent is, but he's not, not giving them any more information that they're, and they're increasingly getting disgruntled about being out in the desert with no direction that he finally loses his temper with them and does the, the striking the rock thing and all that. It really has that vibe <laughs> of like, we're stuck out here for some divine purpose that I don't, that even our leader who always claims to know all these things doesn't really seem to have a clue about, but you're gonna be in big trouble if you question that, that, uh, that plan at this point uh, or, or lack of a plan. Since we were frequently wondering about the passage of time in the last two books and being uncertain, just for our own reference point as an anchor here at the beginning, I, th- I just did the math. I think we are about 11 months from the beginning of The Eye of the World in The Two Rivers. So we are just under a year uh, in these first three novels. If I'm not mistaken, I think chapter one, An Empty Road, begins at Aine, uh in the year N.E. 998 in uh the eye of the world and the chapter chapter 1 of the dragon reborn is in saban which is i think the the third month of the year um in any 999 so yeah that would put us we're we're in late winter early spring here a year later so that's all all the stuff has happened in that period of time there's
2: there's like a really good oh, i just I just found it like a good um hand-drawn visualization of how much time passes in each book that was on Uh Reddit, uh, on the Wheel of Time subreddit. (laughs) I'm going to post it in chat. But it's like, it's it's pretty helpful because it's actually a lot less time than you than i thought mm-hmm. passes by between each of the uh scenes in the books like to me all these things took forever and really like from the very very start to like the very end um there's really not that much time that goes by
0: what's the
3: what's the scale on this grid oh yeah
2: they... where, where is the scale that was uh maybe it was in the posts where they they uh listed it
3: <laughs> my manager would be so mad about this crap <laughs> <laughs>
2: I know, I know, but I don't remember. Just, it was, oh, here it is. Um, one square is 25 days. Oh, okay. Oh, that's okay. interesting.
0: Is that how long their months are? Or is that, uh, I wonder why they chose 25 days even
3: Even increments in like quarters. But yeah, Keely had mentioned this, I think, when we were reading through the second book or starting the second book because we were curious about that. And then I was kind of disappointed by how little time passes overall. Yeah. It just, yeah, it's like 875 characters... days from the, the start end of, of the... the
2: first book to the end. Yeah. But it sort of gives. Two and a half years.
0: That explains why everyone is freaking out about the amount of chaos in the world, right? Like when you realize how many huge political events have happened in this past year. Uh, we've had this huge invasion by the Shanchan. There are kingdoms rising and falling. They're breaking out into civil war in Kahien. And it gives us this sense of just how much of uh, end of day's effect is having? we've we've had we had Loghain the most powerful false dragon quote unquote in hundreds of years captured and stilled and then immediately we have three new proclaimed dragons we've got Rand we've got Mazrum Tame and I, I don't know I don't remember the name of the other or I don't know if we've gotten it yet but we have these other dragons who can channel all these things happening and we start seeing more tavern ripple effects right in the village they pass through in Jara we learn that uh um, um, almost every eligible single person in town has gotten married in the week or two since Rand passed through. Like, Rand arrives, everyone immediately starts proposing to each other just all across town. They're having mass weddings that Rand was playing the flute for. Uh, so we're we're getting, we're getting more explicitly what some, you know, the way, the way that the pattern is just rippling and pulling people into this vortex around the Taveran characters here and affecting the wider world. Uh, any any last thoughts on these chapters? Uh, we didn't get into Chapter Ten Secrets much, where we switch over to Egwene. Is it Egwene's perspective? I think it's Egwene's perspective, and then Nynaeve, Elaine, and Varen are all there. Uh, they, the, they they it's oh it's a uh, it's Child Byer right, who was the the hothead who witnessed the events at Falma at the last uh, the end of the last book. And was constantly annoying Bornhold with how <laughs> over the top and of uh, an enthusiastic idiot he was about everything. Just like constant seeing dark friends behind every corner. Now it seems he's rising through the ranks rapidly, unfortunately. And is trying to start trouble... We get a lot of talk about a child, Valda, the questioner who's been mostly off-screen in the books, but has been very blatantly on-screen in the show so far as this questioner who is really pushing deep into Camelin. and oh, we get we get hints that. Elaine, you know, threatens them. She she pulls the she pulls the Draco. Well, when my mother hears of this uh, with the uh, with Queen Morgay's here, only to be informed by the the children of the light that Ah Morghais may not be so friendly towards the as She always has been, which is really troubling to everybody and to Varen because now the white cloaks have been camped right outside. Uh, Camelon this past year and Andor seems to be getting really infused with the Children of the Light's fervor and maybe Morghese is changing her tune there to the point where they are being aggressors right outside the White Tower leading to newly battle-trained Egwene starting like this earthquake assault to scare off the entire company of of, uh, White Cloaks here which leaves Varen absolutely livid like this is going to break all the trust people have in the Aes Sedai this is going to make things worse with the white cloaks overall it's going to inflame tensions you are you are all children you are idiots you should listen to to me uh one of the older Aes Sedai who knows what she is doing here and I interestingly I don't know that the perspective of the book a hundred percent agrees with Varen here I don't know and I do think it Egwene feels a little chastised, but also really not convinced that that Varen understands the extent to which the White Cloaks are willing to try attacking them here. And uh, it, kind, it kind of feels to me there's going to be this dynamic with all these new, up-and-coming, very powerful, rapidly, chained, t- rapidly trained, accepted, and novices who have experienced shan capture and who have seen war already in a way that the Aes Sedai have not in a very, very long time are going to be butting up heads against the old guard of of the White Tower and that these may be tensions that further increase throughout this book of, of these old ways of doing things that the Aes Sedai have just been set in for so long and maybe not prepared to deal with this new world where they need to be battle-ready, where they need to understand the realities of what the White Cloaks are becoming and their ambitions to rule the world that we've seen in the prologue here. Uh, so, yeah, maybe we'll see where all that goes. I think that's my my last um major note here and anyone else uh
3: fi- final takeaways from these chapters i'm excited to see where things go i think it's starting to pick up a little and to your point i i always like the the novices that are rising up and they're more rebellious and they're not following the the old ways of operating so that's always interesting and then i i do think Perrin is showing that he has potential to be a much more interesting char- main character than uh rand was in a lot of ways so all all good stuff and continued world building here so I'm I'm excited.
1: Yeah, I am excited to see where it goes. Um Hoping that maybe it's just like I need to adjust my expectations, but like <laughs> I I really hate the the vibe of basically like well all of these books, but also of just general um I guess like media where like mm. none of this would happen if you just fucking talk to each other and like <laughs> that's <laughs> yes. such a huge point that or like plot device in all of these books is that like they just don't tell each other things and that gets so frustrating to me where I just like I don't I don't want to read that anymore I don't want to watch shows that are like that where it's like this whole not this entire season wouldn't have happened if you just texted each other and like obviously (laughs) not in this universe but it just like i'm not excited about the fact that you said that like that continues where it's like people withholding things from each other Mm -hmm. and uh, hoping that moraine kind of comes back to like this i guess like this being that i had in my head of her as being like ridiculously powerful and could just like Mm -hmm. mess everyone up at any point instead of just being kind of like wishy-washy and also like really emotionally manipulative with lan like i almost want mm. him to just go kill himself like <laughs> just like bite her no like i love him but she's such a pain in the ass i just wanted to be like fuck <laughs> you like that's like the ultimate fuck you is to get away from her and so like i don't know i'll i guess like we'll see obviously like where it goes i hope that some characters that i liked from the first books are coming back i did have a question though about the prologue um who is is it or or Dayeth? who is that? Oh,
0: that is our, our good friend uh and and dagger wielder um uh Fane.
1: Okay, I wrote um, that down. I said, is that yeah. Padden Fane? Okay. Mm-hmm. I thought so, but I wasn't sure. So yay.
0: <laughs> he's, a, he's like the just this omnipresent leech attaching himself to points of power, it feels like, wherever he can have the biggest impact on the world and, and even he's so like, I think I've compared him to both Gollum and Wormtongue at various points from the Lord of the Ring. And he is in just peak Wormtongue mode here. And even, even the, the Lord Commander knows that he is a, a complete snake and a complete, you know, like manipulative, like got all these secrets probably a dark friend even although he's not sure sure about that but God damn it he just knows so much he's too valuable you can't you can't get rid of this guy he seems to know everything he knows how to kill or how to how to handle Randall Thor uh, just slinking around in secret passages he's dropping on on conversations. Oh you wait! Can, that, you could probably hear unabashed that, excitement in my voice. I, I love this rat.
3: <laughs> wait, so that's oh I forgot he didn't actually yeah. make it out in the. La- I was like it it figured that it was pat and Fane, but I was like at the same time I thought he was in the Shanshan Shan homeland, but I forgot their boats never made it out, so he's still on the mainland. Right, land.
0: right. He was he was gonna go find the empress to attach to, right? <laughs>
3: yeah. Uh, okay, I was mistaken there because I, I had totally forgotten that. They had all their plans were thwarted and their leader had died in the last book's climax. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. I was like, how Mm. is he here if he's also there? It's like, okay, he, he abandoned that scheme after that fell apart. Yep, rat like he he jumped off that
0: particular sinking ship in, in the harbors off off Alme and <laughs> immediately found his way to the the most powerful uh, person he could for his ends.
3: Yeah, oh, and, and already- to build to build off what just just a quick last point because I just remember this section. But in mm-hmm. I think chapter eight, to Keeley's point, they do really like some of the characters do really stupid stuff. Like Perrin smells like this ominous, like really bad vibe in the mm-hmm. wind or whatever, and it immediately brushes it off. It's like why, like why don't they just come? Mm-hmm communicate this to their team it is such a dumb maneuver to be like oh there's this really bad scent in the air like i smell danger i'm just gonna brush this off and move on because this is not a problem like i don't know they they do stuff like that all the time and i'm like you kind of are asking for it (laughs) like you you all put each other in danger you're not communicating so just i i'm kind of feeling Uh like keely i i echo what she's saying there because i really wish they could be a little smarter about communication
0: which from a plot perspective there's not even really any need for that, because they already know that something bad is going to go down. They have men's visions of violent, of violent death coming up. They have um, Herin smelling, uh, smelling violence on the wind. So there's even there's no reason from a structural writing perspective that Perrin needs to be holding back this information either. Uh, either yeah. um, it is it, it is really just to draw out that drama. It seems of this deep dark werewolf secret. There's
2: some yeah, and there's some. Just to wrap up, there's, like, some cool foreshadowing going on in this in first ten chapters. Mm. You have, like, Min, Min's uh, foretelling uh, to uh, Perrin about, you know, uh, what was it? Like, the Falcons and...
0: The Moons, um, I think?
2: What was it? The Moons? The moon. it, some, the sh- what was the other ones? Yeah. Um,
0: this this week, I, I almost entirely listened to these chapters in audiobooks so of my my notes were very bad and very sparse. Was, I, I, I was uh, busy taking care of a puppy
2: the the Iulman in a cage uh, tuatha tuatha mm. with a sword and then the yeah. the falcon and the hawk um, mm. which is a fun like prediction she makes that comes all comes to play later obviously um and then you have uh some some of the cool mythology that comes out with like the wolves um which i thought was fun and Mm -hmm. um i I think there was like one other point but i think those were like the fun i like the fun mythology uh and foretellings i think always make me excited to see what's gonna happen
3: what did he have to that point did he have at, at this stage in the game, did he have all the rest of the books planned out? Like the stuff he's foreshadowing and hinting at, is this just for the next few books or does he have like looking back since you and Caleb have both read through them all now, is he foreshadowing stuff mm. that happens at the finale or is he still like, does he have that clear picture in his head by this point or is that still developing? Well, we, we,
0: we, we shouldn't give away when anything happens, but no, no, not I, when I, though, if, but some of the, like mis- if I'm not mistaken, yeah, I, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, Nikki has an outline at this point, right? He, he, is. Um he has a general plan for the rest of the book series by, by the time of the Dragon Reborn, if I remember correctly, or at least the, the broad events of the plot. Not not sure either.
2: Yeah, I'm not They're, sure if he does yeah. or not. Uh but but I guess he probably leaves it open ended enough. That he could take it in any different way at this point.
3: Gotcha. Yeah, because I didn't know if we weren't supposed. To, I didn't understand the visions chapter, like or not visions, but the dream chapter very well. Mm-hmm. It seemed a little obscure, so I figured you both have a better idea of all like all of the representation. But it felt a little abstract. I'm like, okay, I'm sure this will all come to mind, but at the moment, this is a hard chapter to get mm-hmm. through because it's just a bunch of random imagery and the sword and everything. So it's like setting up the fetch quest and also foreshadowing yeah, certain yeah. characters and things. But I was like, I don't really know what any of this means at the moment.
2: Even even me going through it a second time and having read it the first time in the last year, I, there actually, it was harder to get through those gene chapters. Cause there are actually some, uh, some imagery uses that I don't recall ever being relevant. That just seemed sort of superfluous in general. Oh, so. I, I I
0: disagree. I it was I was, oh, really? I was like, oh my god! I I didn't realize such and such was all the way back here. It was like it felt like like little yeah Easter eggs for a second read through um, on who, remembering the descriptions of those characters. No, but although maybe we might we might be talking about different things uh, in, maybe in the course of what they see in the dreams, but in particular in the Forsaken that he spies on, and in the machinations that they're talking about. Uh, oh, did
2: you say you had questions? Some sort of questions we were supposed to answer? answer.
0: Oh, uh, let's see. Most recently we had, uh, this was, this last one, I'll just do one of these uh, for today. Um, and remember, send them to the contact at Wattcast.net. Uh, but we had uh, on, on Twitter from Wayne, uh, writing and listening, uh, binge listening to uh, our season two cast on The, on the Great Hunt and bringing up that none of us had had said this particular thing, so wanted to mention it. With the introduction of Celine, uh, Jordan had him saying that he missed Matt and re- and realizing that in particular that that there was this very deliberate separation going on here of, of having Matt caught behind while the rest uh, got while while Rand and her and Loyal got sent off into the ways because of how suspicious uh, Matt's nature has become at that point and how paranoid because. One thing we were talking—this is a long while ago, recording time for us—but one thing we all talked about was the the utterly trusting nature of of Rand and, and her, and upon finding this mysterious, beguiling uh, and, and and beautiful woman who is just uh, like like doing her whole lord routine with with Rand in the other world. And from Wayne's perspective, writing in here, that it was sort of necessary to get Matt out of there in the plot terms, because there's no way this would have flown the, the, the entire act that she is pulling off throughout that book uh, until she is revealed to be Lanfear. And I want to say in these dream ch- and that that was, and that was the the message from Wayne. So to, so thanks Wayne for, that's for a great for at- point. Adding this, <laughs> that's a great point. Yeah. Matt would be like, this is <laughs> crazy. what's
2: this crazy bitch doing? You know, like, you totally have called that.
1: Yeah, and like evil recognizes evil. So, like, you know, he's being definitely influenced by, you know, darker things in this universe. So, if he, I feel like he would have picked up immediately on the shit that we were yeah. pointing out as, like, how does no one notice that? It'd be like he would yeah. have been the sassy one that's like, sure, you're wearing white to seem like you know, <laughs> the, the delicate <laughs> virgin, but you're actually like a mega bitch or something. <laughs>
0: I think she's maybe the one thing in these dreams that a first time reader is is meant to recognize. I don't know if that w- if that was clear that that she's the one that Perrin is beholding at this point because I don't think Perrin has ever has he ever even met Lanfear in person so he just sort of describes her in the abstract of this Impossibly beautiful woman in in, in white, uh, going meeting on a bridge with this other figure. What they're talking about there, but it is all very vague. What else, or ambiguous, well, or so other? What what they're that's talking why about. I was
2: having trouble with the dream chapter too, because I, he was describing a, a handful of characters, that, like with with what you know. I think he tried to make like a signature part of their look, but yeah, I wasn't yeah. it wasn't ringing bells for me because uh-huh. there are so many <laughs> characters had so many looks that i was like i don't know which of these characters yeah gray gray hair and they're and they're like well you know
0: and more uh the one the only one that i remember being like oh that sounds vaguely familiar was like so many buckles on on his shoes that you could barely see the leather or something i'm like okay that's an interesting fashion detail but yeah like you said nick there's 900 something characters in the in these books yeah all right, well, uh, next time, folks, we'll be reading through chapters 11 to 15 of The Dragon Reborn. We are going to be getting, I believe, some Tarvalin perspectives uh, throughout the course of these chapters. So we've jump jumping away from, from the Perrin point of view for a while and seeing what has happened in the White Tower since last we were inside its walls. Uh, remember, uh, you can find us all at Wattcast.net, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Wattcast Podcast, and support the show at patreon.com slash Wattcast, where supporting at our tar volunteer higher gets you access to special bonus episodes where we talk about other fantasy series. This episode of Wattcast was produced by yours truly. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at Caleb Wimble. Dan, where can people
3: find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram under the handle Pansy Dan. Keely, where can people find you?
1: On Instagram and Twitter.
3: And Nick,
0: where in the world is Carmen San Diego?
2: Um, she's questioning the questioners. <laughs> Wherever that may be.
0: That sounds about right, actually. She's probably stolen the uh, the stone of tear in the process. The entire thing. Just the the whole damn fortress. Remember, you can also support us by leaving Wadcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Helps a lot. It's the number two way we find new listeners. The number one way is to tell a friend about the show, because word of mouth means the world to us. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, folks. And remember, this is not the ending. There are neither beginnings nor endings to the turning of the wheel of time, but this is an ending. Farewell. to speak, lean and speak into my mic. So if my head's disappearing, it's because I have been editing a bunch the last couple of days and my, my audio just sounds fucking terrible. So I'll do what I can until I get good sound canceling.